If you've been with us, you'll know that we're slowly working our way through the Lord's Prayer. It's intuitive to non-believers and believers alike that Christians are supposed to pray. But being supposed to pray is a very different thing than praying. And praying can be hard. Often we don't know how to begin, let alone finish. Jesus' own disciples had a similar issue. And they asked him, how should we pray? And Jesus taught them. Teaching them how to pray, he said this. This is from Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And when we pray in this way, we begin by recognizing who God is. And, simultaneously, who we are. We recognize our own identity in Him. God is holy. His name is hallowed, high and lifted up above all other names. And because of His love, we are His children, such that we can call Him Father. This is a prayer of identity. Then we pray for uh, the kingdom of God to come. And we pray for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in doing so, we align ourselves with the concerns and the desires of God. So we start with identity, the identity of God, the identity of ourselves. And then we move to God's concerns, our top priority. We're not first concerned with our own kingdoms our own realms of influence, or our desires and wishes. We're concerned with God's. We pray for God's kingdom and for God's will. This is a prayer of alignment. And then we pray for our needs as humans. First, what we've needed from the very beginning, food. Even in the garden, Adam and Eve needed food. And we know just as well as they do that we need food too. So we pray. The Lord provides, and he continues to provide. And then we pray for forgiveness. Forgiveness is what we have needed since the fall, what we've needed since our conversion. Forgiveness is only from God, and by his mercy he has provided it. And likewise, when we forgive others, uh, we pray that God's strength and God's spirit continues to work in us so that we can, at all, forgive like he has done for us. And so this is where we've moved so far through the prayer from identity to the concerns of God, his kingdom and his will, and then through our needs for food, just daily needs, a roof on our head, dinner on our plate. And then we move forward into our discipleship. And that's where we are today. Finally, we pray for what we need in the coming days as we live lives like Christ, our new life in salvation. Father in heaven, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So, lead us not into temptation. This petition is where we're going to spend most of our time, but a few things on the whole of the prayer. I want to argue today, part of the power of this prayer, part of the influence of this prayer, is helping us to see what is true. True things are the real things, the sturdy things, the stable things. 
Truth doesn't conceal, it doesn't deceive, it doesn't misinform or forget. So last week, Stephen preached on forgiveness. Consider forgiveness for a moment. The first step of forgiveness is identifying a wrongdoing. This is seeing the world truly, at least in a moment. Forgiveness is only forgiveness when it confronts wickedness honestly. Forgiveness does not pretend something didn't happen. If someone performed an evil deed against you in order to forgive, you don't just say, oh, that never happened. Forgiveness requires looking in the eyes of your offender. Forgiveness doesn't continue to hold a grudge. Instead, forgiveness sees truly the wickedness of the world on the one hand and the justice of God on the other, which he has displayed to us by his mercy. The forgiveness is to, to forgive is to see truly what the world is like and to see truly who God is at once. We are forgiven because we, like the world, need it. And God is to us who he is always, gracious and merciful. And when we forgive, we see his grace and his mercy, his justice and the wickedness of the world that he has loved truly. And the previous parts of the prayer convey to us the true world as well. Our true identity, as said above, God is truly holy and we are truly his children. This is our core identity. It also aligns us with God's true purposes. Consider God's kingdom and God's will against the kingdoms of the world and the will of humans. God's kingdom will not be shaken. The kingdoms of this world will all fall and collapse, even America. Hopefully not for a long time, though we do pray, Lord, come. God's kingdom will not be shaken. It is true. God's word does not return void, but it accomplishes what it sets out to do. It is sturdy. Our words, like us, from dust to dust, just grass in the field, fade. And in that way, God's kingdom and God's words are true far more than anything we can create or speak, even if our words have power. And we need food. This is simply a true fact. No matter how much we boast, we are and always will be creatures. And an apple pie is delicious and healthy to the body. Thanks be to God. True things. The prayer is communicating to us the true world and the true way in which we live in it. The true way in which God interacts with us in it. So what of this last section that we are dealing with today? Father in heaven... Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What true, what truth does this communicate to us? I think there are at least two things, and two things that we'll focus on today. And the first is this. To pray against temptation and for deliverance from evil is first, like with forgiveness, to see and confess honestly with our hearts, that we are easily tempted and susceptible to the snares of evil. So I'll say that again. The first thing that I think that Jesus teaching us this prayer says in this particular part is that we are susceptible. We are prone. We easily fall to temptation. And we are often tempted. There is real evil in the world. And there is a real tempter. No matter who you are, No matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how long you've been saved, be it a day or many decades, Satan still knows ways to tempt you. He has always been doing it. He is very skilled and he is very crafty. 
But we don't like to acknowledge Satan. We certainly don't like to acknowledge that he's having any sort of potential influence on us, right? Jesus teaches this prayer right after teaching how not to pray like the hypocrites. So let's consider those who've come before us. Consider the hypocrites. How honest do you think they were about their internal temptations? Jesus says, don't pray out in public with long prayers. Keep it short. Go into your closet. Pray to God who hears you. These people who prayed in public seeking affection from their peers, how honest do you think they were about their internal temptations? Do you think they confessed them freely? As higher-ups in the Jewish order, do you think they went around sharing? Do you think they knew in their heart? Do you think they acknowledged in their own hearts? Or do you think they were more concerned with how they looked on the outside? In fact, Jesus answers this for us in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. To those hypocrites, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, tempted by the promise and the power of public status, Jesus taught this prayer. It is a prayer that allows them to recognize their temptation and to move beyond it. And in doing so, to finally address the dirt on the inside of the cup, on the inside of your heart. If we fail to acknowledge temptation, we are ignoring what may and likely is happening within us. Or what about throughout the rest of the history of the church? There's many examples. Consider for a moment the hypocrisy in the Catholic Church. In this last century, it has been brought to light that priests have, on many occasions, sexually abused and molested young children. Imagine you were one of those priests in the early stages of this sin. If Satan began to tempt you toward that sort of wickedness, and it is true wickedness, would you dare to confess it? Would you pray to the Lord, this is the temptation that I'm dealing with, it lead me away. Or would you hide it, conceal it, let it fester and burrow because you were ashamed that you were tempted at all? You're a priest, right? You're holy and righteous, right? Wickedness is far from you. Surely you're not tempted by such horrible things. But they were, weren't they? There is true evil in the world. There's true suffering in the world. And Satan is truly cunning and the ways he brings it about, and the ways he influences us towards it and into it. To those priests, tempted by lust, and tempted like the hypocrites to maintain their status and their worldly authority, Jesus teaches this prayer for their continued discipleship. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a prayer that does not shy away from the reality of temptation that we continue to face as long as we are still here, awaiting heaven, awaiting the resurrection of our bodies. To pray against it is first to recognize and acknowledge that we are susceptible to it. It's worth making a point of clarification here. Maybe it should have been done earlier. Temptation itself is not a sin. Temptation is what evil presents to you before you in order to lure you into sin. 
Sin is the act of taking the bait. So temptation is like a fisherman, right? With the worm. Casts it out. If you're a fish, you're not sinning if there's a worm near you. You're not dead if there happens to be a worm on a lure. But if you bite that lure... So temptation is not sin. So why do we treat it with such shame? Consider, if you were encountering a legitimate temptation and you recognized in your heart that you were being pulled, would you feel ashamed? I know how many times I have felt ashamed just by that. Why, even though we know God has wiped even our sin away, why, even though we know we have nothing to boast about in life or death, but Jesus Christ on the cross and his grace that he offered to us for our life everlasting, why, when we know that it is by that grace alone that we are alive, Are we filled with so much shame about temptation, which isn't even yet sin? We don't need to be ashamed of our sin. As long as we are repentant, even our sin is an opportunity to boast in the grace of God. Not that we continue to sin, but that the grace of God is made known even more. And yet by Satan's deceit, even in minimal temptation, we feel ashamed and we hide it and we bury it. And then it burrows and it festers. This prayer is an opportunity to deal honestly with the temptations that we face with God and with one another. So what are the things that tempt you? I've heard it said that no one is ever a recovered alcoholic. Even if one has been sober sober for a decade, that person is always recovering. Temptation, even if consistently overcome, right? In this life will always remain. So too, though we've been saved, though we've been healed of our sin, though it's been removed from us internally and externally, temptation will still be. We are awaiting in hope the resurrection of our bodies when sin will no longer influence us in any way. Are you tempted by alcohol? Honestly. Is that a temptation for you? Or any other forms of escape? Drugs, television, Something else. Are you tempted to lust? When I was in high school, I was addicted to pornography. And I happen to know some data that says that most, close to all, adolescents have some significant amount of exposure to it, even by a young age. And that influences us. That is tempting. And I also know a large portion of adults... I am not a porn addict anymore by the grace of God, but I continue to pray that God leads me not into temptation, but delivers me from evil. Are you tempted to lust? Are you tempted to gluttony? Having a piece of cake is not gluttony, by the way. That's actually encouraged. Are you tempted to envy? Do you see what your neighbor has and do you covet Do you get jealous? Are you tempted to wrath? Do you easily grow angry and hateful and impatient? Are you tempted to pride or to greed? On Tuesdays when we rehearse as a band, we always do a little Bible study and we pray. We recognized, a few of us at least, uh, that we're tempted to laziness, to slothfulness, to apathy, to indifference. There's pain, there's suffering, there's needs. 
I don't really care. I'd rather sit. Are you tempted to that? That one continues to pull me very strongly. That is a lure that looks delicious. The Heidelberg Catechism, which we read earlier, teaches us that these temptations, which come from our enemies, come from either the devil, the world, or our own flesh. Jesus, by teaching us to pray this way, teaches us that these temptations from each of these three sources is a true and viable temptation that you are likely to encounter. He himself encountered them. And that we do not need to try and cover them up, hide them, or bury our heads in shame by them. We recognize them so that we can pray to overcome them. While we are prone to use our prayers and our deeds as a cosmetic mask to cover up what is really going on, we stand in public places or at the dinner table and we pray so that people think that we're righteous and holy. That's just a mask. This prayer, this prayer, like the Word of God itself, pierces our hearts and shines light on all our darkest places because God isn't interested in masking us up and making us look pretty. God is interested in healing us and leading us into salvation and eternal life. So this is the first true thing, that temptation and the snares of the evil one are real and worth acknowledging. But here's the second and a much greater thing. That while we are weak against temptation and evil, God is powerful against it. All of those things we listed before, our temptations, our sins. We are in need of a Savior, and this is the good news. We heard three stories this morning uh, from Vince, who is blessing us with his cello and his banjo, and from Allison and from Valerie, who blessed us with their voices. We heard three stories this morning of our ancestors, the Israelites, being tempted. The first was of Adam and Eve. Tempted by the snake in the garden, they succumbed. And we know what happened because of it. Ever since, we have been ensnared by sin and death, and we have been filled with shame like they were when they recognized their nakedness. The second reading was from Exodus, when Aaron was tempted by the crowds who, even though they were just rescued out of Egypt by God, demanded an idol be made in order for them to worship some other god. Their hearts were still ensnared by evil, even though they had been rescued. And we heard of the prophet Samuel and his sons, who were tempted by the wicked ways of the world around them, and of the elders of Israel who were tempted by the surrounding nations to get a king with power like they had. Even at the cost of rejecting their God. Even though their father was the greatest judge and prophet up until that time. They went away. And so God told Samuel, Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Not only were they ensnared by their idols, but they wanted further burden on their heads in the form of the king. It's like the American Revolution happening, except them asking for more taxation. And what else would we expect except people running from God? Multiple times in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to Satan as the prince of this world. And what good are we to stand against that? Jeremiah uh, tells us that the heart, your heart, and my heart is deceitful above all things. In other words, our hearts are in cahoots with the enemy, even when we're born. Most of the book of Judges is patterned between these two phrases. They did wicked in the eyes of the Lord, 
And then afterwards, all the people did what was right in their own eyes, as if those are the same. We need a Savior from beyond us because Satan is in some sort of control, certainly not all control, but Satan is the prince of this world that we've lived in. And even our own hearts are turned against us, towards our destruction, deceitful above all else. And when we do what we desire, we end up in the grave. We need a Savior from beyond us, and we need a Savior who would uncover our deepest secrets and transform the depths of our heart. We need a Savior who would lead us forward and who would keep us from temptation and would deliver us from evil, this evil that we are so susceptible to. And that Savior who is capable of all those things is Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is God, become man. He knew the temptation that we deal with. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And like us, he was tempted. He was hungry. And he was offered food. Turn these stones into bread. He was weak. And he was offered strength. These kingdoms have them. Abandoned. And he was offered fame and security. Cast yourselves down. The angels will catch you. And all the people around the temple will see how majestic you are. But Jesus saw through the deception. And he saw the temptation for what it was. A lie. So temptation is true. But what temptation is offering you is not true. And instead, Jesus, when encountered with the temptation of the devil, saw what is true. The truth of God, revealed to him by the word of God and secured in his heart through steadfast prayer. And he overcame the devil in the wilderness. But the devil continued to tempt him, and he continued to resist. Even into his last moments, Jesus had to pray in the garden of Gethsemane. Satan threw all he had at him, and Jesus was tempted again. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, we are told, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel of heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he arose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus urged them to pray so as not to fall into temptation, at least in part, because that was exactly what he was doing. Jesus knows our temptation, but while they slept, failing to pray and failing to put their trust adequately in God, Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed, if you hear it, the Lord's Prayer. Jesus prayed, save me from this time of trial. Do not lead me into this temptation. Deliver me from this evil. And the twist is that for our sake, because we in our whole human history as people have bitten that lure of the devil that leads to our death, God did not answer the prayer of his son. But 
by his will and for his own joy, he gave up his son to death so that we might live. And his death was his triumph, the second twist, because his death came with resurrection and sin and death and all the evil. All the shackles that we have borne since the beginning of time, since were opened, unlocked, and the snares that what we were utterly incapable of, and by the Spirit, He has done it in us. So now, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We know that we can face our temptations with boldness. They are true temptations. The strength we have going forward is in Christ alone. And even though the enemy rages against us by his grace and mercy and work, the overcoming of the temptations that we fail to overcome, we will overcome. He says to us, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep have not. This is the tempter, and this is the promise of following after your temptations. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I, Jesus Christ, am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. Know me. This is our God. And the truth of the whole prayer. Our identity, who God is, God's concerns, and the fulfillment of God's observation of our needs. So, when I. Or is not there at all. His goal is to steal, kill, and destroy you, and He's good at it. So, identify Him. And pray that you do not fall to temptation, even though you are just a sheep prone to wandering. Listen for the voice of the good shepherd. Follow his ways.
of his own life. This is the love of our God for you. Amen. Let us. God, we are grateful. We are grateful that even though we were lost in wickedness, you found us and you saved us. And Lord, we're grateful that you didn't just save us and then leave us, but you saved us and then you sent to us your Holy Spirit so that wherever we go and whatever we are doing, you are with us and you are there to guide us and your tender voice can speak to us and lead us. So God, when we're tempted... Would we not be ashamed, but would we run to you? Would we bow our heads and fall on our knees and pray to you, Lord, to lead us from that temptation and to deliver us from whatever the enemy has planned against us? You've been good to us always, and we are certain by the faith that you've instilled in our hearts that you will be good to us forever. Would you heal us and gather us in your flock and lead us into green pastures? In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.